thanks for coming. Thanks for sticking it out. It got nice out. Let me tell you this. ASAP does not want us to play favorites amongst the lectures we give, just like children, but this is my favorite. Okay, This is my lecture that I've been most looking forward to giving at ASAP this year because during the 50 minutes we're going to talk, there's going to be three more op-eds that come out in some newspaper somewhere talking about concussion and what we're going to do about concussion and how can we stem the tide of concussion. So here's what we're going to cover, and we could go in so many different directions when we talk about concussion. This is what I think as an emergency physician and someone who also does sports medicine needs to know about concussion. Uh, so we're going to talk a little about definition, pathophysiology, that's the easy stuff. Assessment, it's really different than even when I did my sports medicine fellowship 15 years ago. What we do to assess a concussion on the sideline is completely different than what we do today. Return to play, role of treatment, concussion and the law, and then we're going to throw in all the other kind of hot topics, rest, how much rest, what kind of rest, helmets, mouth guards, CTE, second impact syndrome, all the cool hot topics, and those are the ones that are fun. I have no uh, conflicts of interest. I'll give you one disclosure. I've never had to pull my kids out of any sporting thing for concussions. My kids are all swimmers. So as we go in through and look at which sports are safe, my kids do the safe one, but it was not on purpose. It's just what they do. Uh, the other additional info, it's not really a disclaimer, is that I started out doing three years of neurosurgery. Then I did emergency medicine. Then I did a sports medicine fellowship. So I care about this stuff a lot. I read everything there is, and I tell you, it's confusing. I'm confused. I imagine other people are confused, too. There's a lot of information flying at us, a lot of it from the lay press, some of it from the scientific literature. I'm going to try to focus more on the scientific literature and less on the lay press. So let's get rolling. First of all, you have to accept a couple things. We, there is a lot more that we do not know about concussions right now, today, October 29, 2015, than we do know. There's a lot of stuff out there. We're only beginning to figure out concussion, and this frustrates people, and they start trying to fill in the parts we don't know with, re with things that they think might be right. Um, I read, I think, everything you can read about concussion, although like, I, you know, I had to submit these slides three months ahead, and in, in that time there's been so many different things that have come up about concussion, but I've read it all. There's some basic science research. So you can set up a model in the lab and concuss it, but there's not really a lot of people science research. There's a lot of consensus statements. And the last three have come out of Zurich, then Vienna, then Prague. I've never been invited to any of those, but I would love to go because they go to the coolest places to come up with these consensus statements. That's what we have for the most part. There's not a lot of randomized, double-blind trials on concussion. There are quasi-scientific decision rules, and there's not a ton of evidence-based answers. And everyone has an opinion. Everybody should have an opinion on concussion. It's, uh, and that's why there's so many op-ed pieces about what are we going to do about concussion. Why is an emergency physician, you know, I do sports medicine, so probably I have to care about this. Why does an emergency physician have to care about this? This was a study that came out in 2011 that was just a jaw dropper for me. So we're good. We can do all the clinical decision rules, decide who needs a CT and who doesn't need a CT. And then we send you out the door and say, go see a concussion doctor. They're going to help you with this thing. So what happens when we do that? This was a study, 2011, 100 patients in the ED for concussion. They called them up at one month out, and they had recommended every single one of them follow up with a doctor for concussion. Zero had seen a doctor for a concussion, and 63% were still symptomatic from their head injury. So 
better or worse, we're doing this stuff. We have to offer guidance because they may not be going to see anybody else after us. So the good old days when I started my fellowship, basically we would say, well, a concussion is you got your bell rung. That was our scientific definition of it. And my total evaluation of my players was I'd show them, we always do two fingers. You ever showed somebody fingers and not held up two? So they knew you were going to hold up two, and as long as they were in one standard deviation, so if they said anywhere between one and three, you said, you're good. You go back and play, you're all set. You just got your bell rung. Now we've got the good new days, and my job is way more complicated to evaluate concussion. I've got to do fancy stuff on the sideline. I've got to do evidence-based return to play. I'm going to have to do cognitive evaluation, balance evaluations, neuropsych testing. I've got to decide if what helmet we're putting on people is the right helmet, mouth guards, second impact syndrome, post-concussive syndrome, CTE, and return to play. There's all kinds of things going on. So first of all, let's start with the definition. And the summary is at the bottom. 10% of sports concussions involve loss of consciousness. 90% don't. So to get a concussion, something happens, an impulsive force comes to your head. And you get some short-lived impairment of neurologic function. And it's a functional disturbance, right? It's not a physical, it's not a, I see this on CT or MRI. It's a functional disturbance. It makes the brain not work right for a little bit. What's going on from that, you know, that bop on the head? Bop on the head starts a process, and there may be, you know, the people are looking at this. There's probably some dis-autoregulation of blood flow, which gives some areas of edema, microedema, and then microischemia, maybe some capillary damage. And then your cells start doing, your brain cells start doing stuff that is not good, which is they start releasing things into the cytoplasm that make you have the post-concussive symptoms. And the process, the concussion, is not just the bop on the head. That starts it. But it goes on, so the concussion can get worse over time. If you look chemically, biochemically, it's a process. It's not a one-time event. Concussion is a process that's going on. So everybody up there, look, look at what sport your kids play and decide whether you're good parents or bad parents right now. You can just see, am I, am I on the left and I'm a bad parent, am I on the right? Of course, it's not that simple. Um, but just epidemiology for the sports that are highest risk. You see football wins for boys, soccer wins for girls, and just so that we can put it out there, it's not heading in soccer. It's, it's significant. It's heads conking together, heads hitting the ground, or heads hitting the post of the goal. Of the goal. It is not the heading the ball that has ever been shown to be causing the injuries in the, in the girls. So what's the epidemiology? It feels like we are diagnosing, you know, the diagnosis of concussion is going up. It's not clear that the actual incidence is going up, but that everybody's looking for it at this point. The coach is looking for it. The parents are looking for it. The kids are looking for it. The trainers are looking for it. Everybody's looking for a concussion. And so we're all looking for it. It's not clear it's actually happening more often. We're just we're searching it out. The, the numbers is really hard to come up with because the definition keeps changing of what's a concussion, so there is a guess at the numbers. More boys get them than girls because boys do more head injury-prone sports, but if you say sport being equal and number of participants being equal, it may be that girls get them more. If you look at soccer, for instance, so girls get more concussions in soccer than boys. There's definitely more in high school populations than colleges. There's more kids who play sports in high school than in college. And there's probably less supervision in high school than there is in college. 
We do know once you get one concussion in a season, your chances of another concussion that season go up by about three times. So concussion begets concussion. We'll talk about that a couple times. Why is that? Is the concussed brain less able to protect itself? Does the concussed brain not know it's had an injury? Or is the concussed brain trying to remodel and get past the last one? Nobody knows. So what we do know is for sure brains are individual and dynamic. It's like a, it's a platitude, but it helps you understand why the same bop on the head for two people, one of them really has a lot of trouble getting over their concussion, and the other gets better pretty quickly. Now, when I started uh, in sports medicine, we had these concussion rules, and it was like a, a, a menu. You know, you had one from column one, so were they knocked out? Yes, no. Do they, you know, did they have symptoms less than five minutes, more than five minutes, yes, no? And then you say, okay, you are a, you know, level one concussion, you have to be out one week, and then you go back. We never thought about rechecking them. We just said, that's what you have, you can go back in a week. And then they just sit there. If they felt fine the next day, they couldn't do anything. If they felt horrible at a week and one day, they could go back, because we had already used our decision rule. It's an obvious point, but everybody responds to concussion differently. And not only is it the, at the biochemical level, but it's probably influenced by things that, you know, are really, really common. How, what comorbidities does the kid have? Are they, are they sleep deprived when they get their concussion is probably going to be something that's significant. Are they dehydrated when they get their concussion is probably going to be something that's significant. People are looking at all this stuff, but they may all play into how long you're going to have your concussive symptoms after you get the bop on the head. The new, some new thoughts are on this brain awareness problem. So first of all, none of them are going to say, you know, I want to come out. Most high school athletes that whenever I cover a sport don't ever say, I got my bell rung, I got a concussion, I want to come out. I can see when they have a trimal fracture and I can get them out, but it's sometimes hard unless they come to me and say, in the bottom of that pile, I really got my head hit hard. I may not, you know, if they don't tell me, I'm not going to see it. And it's a subjective diagnosis, and so I've got to rely on them being honest. And, and this may come as a shock to you, but your 16-year-old is not always honest about stuff. And so if they don't come to me and they're not honest about symptoms, you know, do you have a headache? Do you know what the score is? Stuff like that. If, they're, if, if they can fake it to me, I don't necessarily have an objective test that I can, I can invoke. And then there is this new study on this anosognosia, which is the state of being unaware of your own brain injury. You can't be There may be something about concussion that limits your ability to be introspective, and they're not necessarily being dishonest on purpose. It's a new area of study that people are looking at. Maybe the concussed brain doesn't know to say I'm concussed. So what's my general rule? All comers, I want all my residents to be able to tell the, the kids we see in our pediatric ED, what's the all comers number for a concussion? How, when are you going to be better? Because that's what the parents want to know. That's what the kid wants to know. I tell them this, about 90%, 9 out of every 10 concussions I see are going to be all better in about a month. Um, what's going to affect that? How many other concussions you've had. History of migraines seem to predict a slower recovery from concussions. History of learning disabilities, dyslexia, things like that will predict a slower recovery. Um, your degree of your symptoms, how symptomatic are you from your concussion, and maybe female sex. Female, the female sex may be predictive of a longer recovery. That's being looked at. So again, and when I, you know, back in the good old days, held up two fingers, you were done. Now there's so much stuff you got to do on the sidelines when somebody gets concussed, and you see, you know, they talk about it in the NFL, they talk about it at the college level. These were all kind of things I thought to look for when I was looking at, you know, do you have a headache? Are you dizzy? Can they concentrate, zone in on me? Are they having trouble seeing? I've got to look for all that stuff, plus a whole bunch of other, other things on the sideline. 
in order to decide, are you concussed and what are we doing today? And the, the punchline is, you know, I'm going to find the really concussed kid. We're not that good at finding the minimally concussed kid, um, even using these standardized tools. So I'm going to talk for a second, and this isn't something that probably a lot of us do unless you do sideline coverage. But if you do sideline coverage for sports, I would encourage you to know something about one of these three scoring systems. This, and they're all at the end of the syllabus. I put the complete SCAT 3, the child SCAT 3, and the... Um, the concussive recognition tool, they're all at the back of the syllabus. So you have the whole thing there. But, you know, why do a standardized assessment? Why not just let each person make it up? This is one of those places in medicine where asking open-ended questions does not work. So just saying, asking someone, how do you feel? Do you feel like you got your belt? Open-ended questions don't get you to the answer for concussion. You have to hone in and ask specific questions to get to the fig to figure out if this person has been concussed or not. And it's been shown. Studies have shown using a checklist is more sensitive than just asking open-ended questions. You also have to do some assessment of balance. Getting a concussion also throws off your balance. And the last thing you want to do is send someone out there who I can't pick up a really a cognitive problem, but they've got a balance problem because they're just going to get hurt again right away. So I'm, I don't want to send out someone with a balance problem either. When you do studies on these sideline assessments, they all are about the same. That's why I don't say, well, do this one and not that one. They all give you a sensitivity somewhere 80 to 94%. So they find it's a good test. It's not a perfect test, but they're pretty good at finding concussion. And the specificity reported is somewhere between you know, 75 and 90%. So what are things that are on these sideline assessments? I'm not going to bore you by going through all the questions, but you're asking very specific questions. You're not just saying, how do you feel? You say, where are we today? What place are we playing? You know, what half are we in now? Are we in the first half? Are we in the second half? Who scored last in this game? Uh, who'd you play last week? Um, did you win the last game? You know, very specific questions that you're pretty sure this kid would know the answer to beforehand. It's, and, and asking them specific questions, and you're giving them a score. I'm not going to bore you with the scoring thing because most of us don't do sideline stuff. But standardized assessment, if you do it, you need to find a standardized tool you like and use it to assess these people. And you have to do a balance assessment, too. So you're going to look at how do they stand? Can they do a single leg stand? How is their tandem gait? How long can they walk a tandem gait before falling over? You've got to have the brain working both for thinking and for balance if you're going to say this person is not concussed. What's a big ticket item? If I find this, it doesn't matter what the other stuff is. If I find this, you have a concussion. So amnesia is a big deal, whether it's antegrade or retrograde. You can't remember what happened after the head, the head injury or you don't remember what led up to it. Either one of those are a big ticket item for the concussion assessment. You give me any, any amnesia, you're done, you have a concussion, we're out of the game. I don't need to do all that other stuff. So those are big ticket items. Again, if you just get roped into covering a game that's covering, coming Saturday and you want to know what's my, well, the one rule I will not violate, the one rule is if you decide someone has a concussion today, you need to get them out of the contest they're in. Now, probably the coach will know that, the players will know that, the parents will know that, but here's the thing. The parents want their kid to play, the kids wants to play, and the coach wants them to play. And so it can become a challenge for the sideline physician to get the kid out of a contest. Um, so McCrory came up with a, you know, the mnemonic, when in doubt, sit him out. 
if you think there is any chance that kid has been concussed today, they come out. It should be that way at all levels. I don't control at higher levels. It should. We've all seen examples where they have not done that. Um, but in, if I'm covering it, if I think you've had a concussion, you're done for the day. I can do some other assessments later, but you're done for today. Imaging, we, you know, as emergency physicians, we're good on the imaging part. We know who needs a CT, and, and a lot of kids get sent in from, from the field by, by well-intentioned people saying, well, they need a CAT scan because I think they have a concussion, and you spend some time, you're, you know, you're going to be in that room for a good 10, 12 minutes because someone has set the pre-ED arrival expectation that you're going to get some kind of functional or some kind of imaging of your brain to look for a structural problem, and concussion is not a structural problem. It's a functional problem. So it's, it's not a hard discussion to have, but it's one that I feel like we wind up having more often than not because people get sent in for us to see, the, the kids get sent in for us to see. And I tell them, yeah, there's fancy stuff. A CAT scan's not going to tell me anything about a concussion. There are people doing research on fancy studies, but if they're, they don't meet imaging criteria by what we as emergency physicians are comfortable with, they don't meet imaging criteria. Concussion's not a there's your concussion on the CAT scan or whatever. It is a functional disturbance. It's at the biochemical level. It's not a structural problem. So what are some things we try to do to prevent concussions? How about helmets? Have, can helmets make you safer uh, to, you know, is it safer to play football in a helmet or not a helmet for concussion? So why did they start wearing helmets? Well, back in the, I guess, 20s and 30s, there was a lot of catastrophic head injuries in American football, and they considered getting rid of it altogether. So they started wearing helmets, and first leather helmets, and then fancy helmets. Surprisingly, trying to find data that says a helmet limits concussion, so not a catastrophic injury, but just concussive injury, is really, really lacking. There's good data that it decreases catastrophic head injury in a lot of things, skiing, snowboarding, cycling. And there's a little bit of data that a helmet plus a full facial uh, mask reduces concussion in college hockey. There is some literature that supports that. American football, there's really not much literature that says you decrease concussions by wearing a helmet. You do decrease the catastrophic injuries, but you don't decrease concussions. So the bottom line is they're, they're reinventing helmets all the time, and they're changing them. They're making them lighter. They're making them more padded. They're doing things. Um, and you can affect some biomechanical forces, but there's really not much literature out there that says any type of helmet is any better at preventing concussion or any worse at preventing concussion. They're all good at preventing the bad head injuries. How about mouth guards? This is the brain pad, okay? That sounds promising. Maybe if I put a brain pad on my kid, it will, you know, pad their brain. Um, if you look, at, you know, they sell it, and it's an expensive one. But when you look, it's called brain pad, but every single word written on here talks about jaw joint protection. That's not your brain. That's your jaw joint. Everything here talks about jaw joint protection. Why is it called brain pad? But they talk about jaw joint because there is no literature that says a mouth guard is going to present, prevent a concussion or very, very little literature. They're really good at present, preventing dental injuries and jaw joint injuries. But they call it the brain pad, so you might buy it, but nowhere on the thing does they say, and by the way, it pads your brain. It's just implied in the name. There's been uh, four prospective cohort studies, and only one of them showed a very, very mild trend towards concussion reduction, which means concussion reduction, which means three of the four did not show that it helped at all in preventing concussions. 
the two randomized controlled trials and one prospective cohort study has tried to compare, well, BrainPad versus the Walmart brand versus whatever, the expensive ones versus the cheap ones, and nobody can say that their mouth guard is any better or any worse at this. They all protect the teeth and the jaw. They probably all equally or equally don't protect the brain. So that's the bottom line for mouth guards. Uh, they protect, they're great at teeth, jaws, TMJ. There's really not much evidence. There's a trend in one study of four that they maybe decrease a little bit the severity of concussion, but that's not much. How about rest, neuropsych testing, therapy, return to play, the consequences? What are the consequences if we screw this up? And we'll talk about second impact and CTE. So recovery, majority are gonna get better soon. Most kids are going to get better. Most people are going to get better from their concussion relatively quickly. Maybe it's going to take longer in kids. Maybe it's going to take shorter in kids. It, we, nobody really knows, but the vast majority of people are going to be better in you know, sometime less than two weeks. But there is not a lot of reliable data that you can point to that say, I can speed this up by either telling you to do stuff or giving you stuff or giving you therapy. There's not much data that says that I can speed that up. So cognitive rest, this is a big one, right? This one is in the papers a lot. And, and my partner got into it. His daughter uh, played soccer and got a concussion from hitting the goal thing. And uh, the nurse, school nurse continually would not let her come back to school. She said she needs strict, complete cognitive rest. And Chris is pretty smart, and he knows the literature. And he said, well, I'm not sure that's true. And she would every day come to school, and then the nurse would say, you need to come get your daughter. She needs to go home and have strict cognitive rest. Can't come to school. And they really got into it, had to get the school board involved and stuff like that. He got his daughter back into school. So the big question is, do we need to rest the concussed brain? And if we're going to rest them, what kind of rest are we talking about? Dark room? You know, earphone, noise-reducing earphones, so nothing. They get no stimulation. Are we talking just no texting? Are we, what are we talking when we say rest? How long? A day, a week, a month, a year. How long are we supposed to not exercise their brain? And I guess it would be important to know, does it work? Does it make a difference? Or could we alternately be hurting their recovery? So that's the big question, rest it or don't rest it. And the good answer is yes and no. You can find uh, some evidence to support it, and you can find evidence against it. And there's a 14 and 15, two kind of big papers came out pointing opposite directions in 2014, 2015. The yes one is the uh, February 2014. They gave you some cognitive rest, and if you had less cognitive activity, you got better sooner. Followed right up by another study came out, you know, in 2015. They said, well, let's rest you, but just rest you, give you relative rest, which means do less than you usually do, and only do that for one or two days versus, no, you're the five days, no reading, no texting, no TV, no school, no nothing. And the kids who did the very short relative rest were better much sooner than the kids who got the big cognitive rest. That study, just breaking that second study down a little bit more, it was 99 kids age 11 to 22, so a decent spectrum. Um, and it was, you know, the, so the strict rest was strict rest, and the relative rest was just do less. And it was kind of ill-defined, but it was do less than you usually do. But they had, the long rest group had significantly more post-concussive symptoms at 10 days out. And they couldn't find any neurocognitive, so testing you or doing testing, neurocognitive testing or balance, they couldn't find any difference in the group. So it's not like the kids who got short rest were having other sequelae. They're having less symptoms and less objective problems on testing. So is rest the best medicine? The benefits, I think, at this point have pretty much been assumed but not really proven. 
You know, these are other areas where we used to know that rest was the right thing to do. When you had back pain, you got to go, go to bed, right? And better if it's on a hard mattress. We covered that yesterday. Whiplash, you need to lay down. Psychiatric illness, they need quiet rooms. You know, just let them rest. Stroke, you used to get admitted and you put you in a quiet, dark room. Same with heart attack. We used to do all these things that we thought rest was going to fix it. And it turns out rest is the opposite of what we need to do. So maybe the brain's like the rest of the body and it wants to get going again. So reading all of this, what do I say? What do I tell people? I think there's evidence that maybe a little bit of relative brief cognitive rest is helpful. And I think there's some evidence that prolonged cognitive rest is not helpful. And the problem is nobody knows what brief or long is, and really knows, nobody knows exact definition of cognitive rest. So the, this is pretty much the phrase I use, is that, you know, mom, dad, there's some evidence that a short period of resting your child's brain after a concussion may be helpful. In the next few days, I say try to limit all the stimulation, less TV, less texting, whatever. Once you find your kid doing that, even though you asked them not to do it and they say it doesn't make their head work, then just let them do it because we don't really have evidence that taking that stuff away is really, really helpful. So maybe a short period of rest, relative rest, as soon as they go back in texting and they say, yeah, it doesn't bother my brain at all, then they're probably done with the relative rest. How about second impact syndrome? This is the one we all, you know, this is the one we all say, well, if I send somebody out with a concussion too soon and they go back, they get a head injury and their brain swells up like a blimp and their head explodes and they die, right? That's the description of second impact syndrome. And that's what I was taught. So how many cases of second impact syndrome have been described in the medical literature? I'm gonna skip like a gazillion. How many think more than 100? How many think more than 60? More than 20, less than 20. Okay, the majority are with me on less than 20. How many have been described outside of the United States? What percentage? Are we the only country where this happens? Yes. The only place this injury has been described is in the United States. So let's dig in a little bit more. Let's, let's decide, is this even a disease I need to worry about or not? So it was first described in 1984, not that long ago, Saunders and... Harbaugh, Bob, Bob Saunders, Richard Harbaugh at um, Dartmouth. And it was a case report. They said they had a kid who had malignant brain swelling, who had had a previous closed head injury. Now, the first thing is, it wasn't a witness head injury. The kid had had a fight five days earlier. No one even knows if he had been hit in the head, but he had been in a fight, so maybe. They decided maybe he hadn't gotten all the way better, and then he got in a second. Then they watched him play football, and there was a big tackle, and everybody get up, and he lay there. He was still down. And they said, well, maybe underneath the huddle, his head got hit, and it was a second injury. He hadn't gotten better, and his brain swelled up. And a new disease was born. So there's some case reports, and as we now know, there's less than 20 case reports. Paul McCrory is, a, is an Australian sports medicine physician. He's awesome. And he described, he, he's the head physician for Australian rules football, which is like American football, but way meaner and with no equipment. And so he says he has the perfect laboratory for concussion study. And, and he, he writes that you know, in the U.S., belief in the so-called second impact syndrome has reached almost mythical proportions. And there's no doubt that your brain can swell after a head injury, but he says, I don't know if any of those less than 20 case reports are actually a thing that happened or not. So he looked. He pulled, there's 17 case reports. They're all in the United States. And he said, let's do a test. Let's make four criteria that would make it second impact syndrome. So there has to be a first closed head injury that someone has witnessed and has been evaluated by a doctor. There's documentation that they did not get better. 
they get another second head injury, they get a second head injury, and then their brain swells up. That's what he would say, let's call that, that second impact syndrome. Let's see how many of these cases satisfied that requirement. So how many had the first of the 17 case reports had a documented first head injury? Five of the 17 did. How many had documentation of ongoing symptoms after that? Seven of 17. How many had another head injury with rapid deterioration? Six of 17. And then how many had swelling? The swelling was the common one. Whatever bad happens, they wound up with brain swelling. If you look at the overall numbers, zero of 17 met all four criteria. So none of the 17 cases had all four of those things that would make it second impact syndrome. Five of 17, he said, well, they had two or three. I'll say that's possible. And 12 of 17 had zero of those criteria. So really, five of, seven of the 17 case reports are in the possible second impact syndrome. So, you know, and he naturally asks, why is this only happening? Why, why does this only happen in the United States? I see Australian rules football people who hit their heads all the time, and this doesn't happen. Um, and he said, why don't boxers get this all the time? They're always getting punched in the head. Shouldn't this be just commonplace? Their heads are exploding all over the place because they're getting head injury after head injury. Um, we know your brain swells. So, the, you know, 13 and 17 had brain swelling. We know when you get a, head, a bad head injury, your brain swells. That's not news to anybody here. Um, so what he concluded, you know, your brain swells after a head injury, and we know brain swelling will kill you. But when you look at closely at second impact syndrome, the evidence is not super compelling. And if it is a disease, it's really a disease that has been maybe postulated in five adolescent males in the U.S. in the whole history of the disease. Now, do I ever invoke it? You bet I do. If I'm trying to get a kid to stop playing something, I say, you know, your head could get hit again and it would explode. Do you want that? And they say, no. And the parents say, oh, we've heard about that. We don't want it. But in my heart of hearts, I don't think second impact syndrome is really the reason why I'm pulling kids out. I don't think that's a thing. Or if it's a thing, it's five adolescents in a long period of time in the United States and it's nowhere else. What about return to play? This is a pretty hot topic. Here's the bottom line is that you can't return doing anything until your symptoms have resolved. First at baseline. So you have to be able to do, when you're doing nothing, you have to have no symptoms. Then you have to do something and have no symptoms. And if I have the luxury of having neurocognitive testing and that's at return somewhere close to baseline, that's really good. And the one thing that frustrates everybody, the coach, the parents, and the kid, is I can't tell you when that's going to be. It's going to happen, but I can't tell you when exactly it's going to happen. We've talked about this, you know, concussion begets concussion. We know previously concussed brain, it's harder to repair damage. Um, I will get to CTE at the end and talk about the cumulative injury effects and what, where are we are with uh, CTE. But you have to have no symptoms as a starting point at rest, and these are all the things that I need to know about, you know, the headaches, memory, concentration. In school, are you writing, you know, read a sentence, and then you read it, you have to read it again because you have no idea that you just read that sentence. All these things, I try to get a sense. And then I start putting you through just progressive exertion, and then I like to add in, if I have that luxury, objective assessment, a neuropsych test of some kind. This is the... For, the, for any of you who really do sideline stuff, this is the way we go through it. And, you know, so initial period of rest, no symptoms. Okay, now you can start doing light aerobics. Do you get symptoms? Nope. Okay, we'll go on to the next one. We'll do, start doing non-contact. Are you getting symptoms? Nope. Good. We'll go on to the next one. If you develop them at a level, I just drop you back to the level where you last didn't have symptoms, and we hang out there for a while. And if you start doing better, we'll progress you again. You've got to stay at a level for 24 hours. I'm not going to speed you along through the thing. 
And, uh, you know, there's a low threshold to drop you back down. So what's the deal with neuropsych testing? How many people here have kids who take neuropsych tests at the start of the season? Do you know, do you ask your kids if they purposely vomit the first time so they can play? I ask my kids, my kids swim, but they also, two of my girls play field hockey, so they have to take it. And they, they all say, oh, every kid knows that. You vomit the first time so that if you get a concussion, it won't look so different and you can play sooner. So they all know about that trick. Um, and neuropsych testing doesn't occur, you know, occur in a vacuum. Other things, the same things that can affect your ability to heal your concussion affect your neuropsych testing. So, you know, how rested are you? How hydrated? Other injuries, previous, uh, previous um, concussions, et cetera. There's a bunch out there. There's, you see them down below. They're available online. Many school districts, but not all, um, pay for it. it, it I wish it was cheaper, but they pay for a, you know, a school subscription and they have every athlete who plays a contact sport take it at the beginning of the season. Then when you get a concussion, you take it again and you keep taking it until your post-concussive score is somewhere near your pre-concussion score. Um, there's some problems with it. You know, the, the cognitive recovery can precede or follow your symptom resolution, so it's always a little bit unclear where exactly and during the time you test them. You can just keep testing them, although they can learn all of these tests can be learned, and there is some learning effect. So if you take it, you, you know, concussion, to take concussion out of the picture. If I ask one of you to take the test and then take it again, you're going to do it better the second time than the first. So there is some, by taking it more often, you just get better by learning the test a little bit. Um, it's nice to have some objective uh, thing, though, that I can point to and say their test scores got better, they got back to their preseason level. Um, it's not totally clear whether adding this actually impacts clinical management for outcomes of concussed athletes. It's a good thing you can hang your hat on for saying, look, I have some objective evidence, but if you, you know, that they've gotten back to their baseline. But if you then say, okay, show me the literature that says, and that improves outcome, there's not a lot of literature that says that improves outcome. These are all the things the tests do when you take the computerized test. They're going to check all these things, and they're going to give you some kind of score. In the U.S., last time there was a survey, a little less than half of the schools were using it, which means a little more than half of the schools were not using it. So you just may not have that data point. So kind of bottom line, what role do they have? They can be part of a comprehensive evaluation, and they may help me find the athlete who won't tell me stuff. What do they not do? I, they cannot tell me who, when you're going to get better. They won't predict how soon you're going to get better. They can't really give you prognosis for you know, CTE in the future. They are, they are not designed to and should not be used as a sole determinant of when you're going to go back and play. They are just a piece of the puzzle. They are not a you know, green light, you did okay, go back and, and play your sport, or red light, stop. You can't because you know, the test said so. The conclusion, I would say, is that they are part of a diagnostic evaluation, but there's really no evidence that says any one item like that is enough to help you decide who's ready to go back to play. What about post-concussive syndrome? It's a, it, it's a tough one to get your hands, hands around. There's a lot of different literature out there. Um, it's now a little bit controversial, especially in the protracted form, what we're really seeing. Because it's really vague subjective symptoms. I don't have any energy. I kind of got a headache. I'm, I feel a little dizzy. I'm not sleeping right. Which are the exact same symptoms that an athlete gets when you say you can't play your sport. So it's hard, you know, it maybe is this. 
there is a school of thought that maybe this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. We keep holding these kids out, and they say, ah, I just don't have any energy, and it's because they're not getting to do their sport versus it's actually due to the, con you know, the concussion itself. I will say this is a really murky area right now, and, and we do know that the neuropsych testing does not seem to help us see who has concussion in this group nor who's going to get it when we test you early on. There is um, nothing in the cognitive rehab literature that says you can either prevent it or get somebody out of it by doing cognitive rehab. And there's a little bit of literature now that says positive messaging early on decreases the incidence of it, which is if you were in my back pain talk yesterday, that's the you're going to get through this, it's going to get better, um, you're going to be a little bit better each day. In back pain and maybe in concussion, positive messaging does lead to actual better outcomes. And then how about CTE? Got to talk about it a little bit. I like the original name. It used to be called the slug nutty state. We changed it. To, it got changed to punch drunk and then dementia pugilistica to make it sound like a doctor thing. And now CTE is the, is the coolest, way, is the latest way. But I like slug nutty. It sounds really vintage. So it was described by a, a doctor who covered boxers in England a long time ago. And he, you know, found there was a brain shrinking and a brain wasting problem in boxers in England. What's the evidence with CTE? Well, there is some evidence that repeated concussions, significant concussions, can cause a cumulative neuropsych deficit. The problem with CTE literature is there's been a lot of politics involved with it, too, because different groups have a reason either to want it to exist or not to want it to exist. And the NFL is a big, powerful organization, and it would be more con it would be better for their side if it was not necessarily a disease that was linked to chronic concussions. So you can see why the NFL, if they were funding research, would like research to show that it doesn't really, it's not an outcome of chronic concussions. And you can see why the other group that funds the research in this, the NFLPA, why they would say, we think it does, because they're trying to get a big, huge settlement out of the NFL, which they did get, um, to cover chronic brain injury. But the problem is those are the two people doing the most research, or those are the two funding sources for most of the research on CTE right now. And so anything that comes from the NFL, the NFLPA immediately says, well, it's funded by the NFL. Of course it's going to say it's not really a big deal. Anything that comes out of the NFLPA, the NFL is going to say, well, it's self-serving. Of course they found that there's a connection. They want more money. So that's the problem with the literature is you need someone not the NFL or the NFLPA to be funding this stuff. But here's what, we, what I think is true. I think there is more neurodegenerative disease um, in football players or in people with repetitive significant concussions. No one has ever shown that this happens with repetitive subconcussive injuries. So heading the ball, no one has ever said heading a ball, so a lot of little subconcussive injuries causes CTE. This is major concussion. Um, it increases by some amount, your neurodegenerative disease and your Alzheimer-related disease. Is it three times? Is it four times? Is it two times? Is it seven times? I don't think anybody knows yet, but we think it probably increases it some. We know one in five boxers get it, but that means four in five boxers did not get it. So are they just the good ones? Or is there something, you know, does, are some people just predisposed to getting it? Or is there just 20% of boxers are really terrible in this world and they get all the head injuries for the 80% for the who are good boxers? There is a gene predilection. There is for sure a gene predilection, this APOE4 genotype. 
If you have that and you get a lot of concussions, you are way more likely to wind up with CTE than if you don't have that. Now, if you don't have it, does that mean you can't get it? Nobody knows yet. This is new stuff. We do know, just like the um, other stuff, uh, the recovery from your concussion, if you have a history of a learning disorder or disability, that is a risk factor for developing CTE. Here's a 2012 study, 3,500 uh, NFL players who played between 58 and 88, so from an older time when helmets and, uh, you know, where people were not looking for this versus a newer time when we were starting to look for it at least. There was increased, you know, they said, is there increased ALS, Alzheimer's, depression, suicide? They did notice that, first of all, they had a decreased mortality versus all commerce U.S. population because they're healthy. Otherwise, you know, they were a healthy people who were playing pro sports. So overall, less mortality than average folks. But they did find, again, that three times increase in neurodegenerative problems and four times increase in ALS and Alzheimer's disease. The connection is really, really, really unclear right now what that, can, what that is and if you can predict it. So what I do is I acknowledge that anyone who has a possibility and plays a sport where you get head injuries, there is a potential for long-term problems. We don't know exactly what the chances are right now. Um, we don't think there's any connection between subconcussive head injuries and uh, CTE, but people who get repeated serious concussions, especially if they have this genotype, and again, this genotype is probably a last year kind of thing, uh, those people are at high risk for CTE. I'm going to bring it home talking about the law. Um, there is no federal concussion law in this country, but all 50 states have a concussion, have a state concussion law, but, but lots of them have a different concussion law. There's three common components to the law on laws on what you need to do about concussions in your state. One is there has to be an education component of concussion. You have to teach parents, kids, coaches, etc. There has to be an education effort to teach people about concussion, how you find it, what you do about it. There is a state-supported law removal of play, which, you know, I will tell you as a sport, as for doing sports medicine, every single kid's, every single parent's kid is the star of the team, and this is the most important game that they're ever going to play in, and if they don't play in this game, they won't get the scholarship to USC, so please don't take my kid out of this game. There is in basically all 50 states, you have the law on your side to say, well, your kid's coming out of the game because they have a, I believe they have a concussion. When in doubt, sit them out. I have an obligation to remove them. Remove them, and if you want to, if you want to say it's not just me saying it, you can say because the state law says I have to. And then clearance to play. An athlete has to be cleared once you get diagnosed with a concussion. You need to be cleared by someone, and, and, and the law is usually pretty vague. Someone trained in concussion evaluation, um, so it's a licensed healthcare professional. But that definition is kind of all over the road, and, and many states say it can only be in an MD or a DO. Some states say, oh, it can be an athletic trainer, it can be a nurse practitioner, it can be a PA. Some say a chiropractor is okay. So different states have different, they, they, they have been a little bit less proscriptive about who can actually say, you're blessed, you're ready to go back out. They all have a law, but the law varies. So we're going to wrap up and just summarize. So I will, again, reiterate, there is... The reason why there's so many opinion pieces in the paper about concussions is because there is way more that we don't know right now than we do know, and everybody wants to fill in that void. Um, but know when you read the op-eds and the, and the articles that it's somebody's opinion about how they can fill the void between what we know and where we're going on concussion. Know that if you are covering anything on a side and somebody gets a concussion, immediate removal from play, when in doubt, sit them out. Just get them out. Don't, every kid's the star. Every kid's about to get a scholarship. Just get them out. They can't play anymore. 
Cognitive rest is controversial. If you're going to do it, I think shorter is better than longer, and it's relative cognitive rest. I don't think there's any literature you can point to and say put him in a, you know, a sensory deprivation tank for maximum cognitive rest. Um, if it doesn't bother them doing the thing, let them do the thing. Neuropsych testing helps evaluate concussion, but it is not the be-all and end-all. There has never been any treatment that speeds up concussion recovery. Now, are they doing it? You bet. I went to the NFL team doctor meeting maybe two years ago, and you get a concussion in the NFL. They have like a right ear vestibular therapist working you and a left ear vestibular therapist and an ocular therapist and a position sense therapist. They got all kinds of people trying to brain pace you out of whatever you got, but there's no literature that says doing all that stuff helps. But they have infinite money, and so they're trying everything. Um, don't, don't, if your kid plays football, don't buy the super expensive helmet unless you want to, but don't do it based on the fact that they say, well, this one prevents concussion and that one doesn't prevent concussion. If you want to buy the brain pad, that's fine, but just remember that the only place that says brain pad is on the brand name. It does not say anywhere else on that mouth guard uh, that it actually pads the brain. They all protect the jaw and teeth. They don't necessarily protect the brain. Second impact syndrome is fine to invoke. Like I said, I, I don't believe it exists, but I invoke it whenever I want to scare somebody out of playing a sport and taking their concussion seriously. But I don't think that if you're going to look at the literature or the science, I don't think there's a whole lot of science behind second impact syndrome. And then CTE is we're going to know more about CTE in the next five years. Genetics plays a role. It's unclear what else plays a role, but we're going to, I bet there will be people who are really smart in this world who are going to figure out a lot more about who's at risk for TTE than we know right now. There is another lecture in here following me, so I don't want to hog up their time. I'll hang out just outside these doors for questions or comments. Thank you.